0: Fellowship and love. Ignatius Press is pleased to announce the first national book club created for Catholic schools. Ignatius Book Club for Catholic Schools was launched to support Catholic schools' dedication to forming the whole child, mind, body, and spirit. Ignatius Book Club for Schools partnered with leading publishers of children's literature to offer the best books and educational materials for all reading levels and interests. Head to IgnatiusBookClub.com slash podcast and find wholesome books that delight, inspire, and enrich.
1: the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church in modern times and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Tim O'Malley. Tim is a Catholic theologian, author, speaker, and managing director of the Graf Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. He is an associate professional specialist in the Department of Theology at Notre Dame, also serving as academic director of Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. Thank you so much for being with us today, Tim.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: So I want to get right into talking about your new book from Ave Maria Press called Off the Hook, God, Love, Dating, and Marriage in the Hookup World. And that is quite a topic to tackle, I guess you could say, in today's culture. And in your book, you take an in-depth look at what's come to be referred to as the hookup culture. And this can best be described as one of the current epidemics plaguing our dating youth in which the relationship begins with sex rather than culminates in a consummated sexual union. Describe how our culture got to this point.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with a deep fear of communion, intimacy, friendship, communication. So, uh, you know, in my own reading, uh, sociological literature, cultural literature, as well as analysis of many of my students and what they're going through, uh, they have a deep fear of commitment, a fear of of anything that lasts more than a a very small period of time. And so uh, one of the things that many of them are tempted to do is engage in sexual relationships that allow for a kind of shadow of this intimacy without really entering too deeply into commitment, right? So they, they want an occasion of encounter, a feeling of being connected to someone without the consequence really of uh even knowing their name, of getting to know them, of sharing a life with someone. And so it's this real fear of intimacy, of communion with another person.
1: So have you developed any theory of where that fear mostly comes from since it's so far widespread now?
2: Well, I I suspect that we don't do a very good job of forming people for communion to begin with. I mean, if we think think a, a sort of You know, I'll give three key examples. Number one, I mean, think about our neighborhoods and think about how we reside next to each other or don't reside next to each other. And there's this real sense of radical loneliness of being apart from one another. At the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about smartphones, smartphones. Uh, the kind of way that we're constantly connected to one another. We have the mediation of this device that keeps us away from like an authentic human encounter with someone. In some ways, all interactions are mediated. And, and, you know, lastly, we've created kind of cultures and schools where people don't learn to interact with one another uh, face to face. They don't learn to interact with one another. Everything is sort of mediated encounter. And so rather than then learn friendship to to be in the same space as one another, to share a life with one another, we learn, uh, we we fall back into sort of what is physical, what feels like something. And so a lot of uh, young people, that's what they fall into.
1: Right. And the hookup culture forms our understanding of not just physical union, but of love and the meaning of the human person altogether. So commitment loses its purpose and our partner's body is for our own pleasure. Then. Both women and men adopt a narcissist outlook towards relationships, and there is a shame in the longing for that authentic love that you speak of. So how is this shame perpetuated and reinforced?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I see shame. I I certainly see a kind of shame. Um, I actually find mostly a kind of a desire to escape this. And so I'll often have students come talk to me and say, I actually don't like this. Uh, and and right. what they most want is just someone to sort of offer them an alternative narrative, a different cultural script that they could choose to sort of live their life within. They, they want a, a transcendent source. So there is a kind of shame, but I often get a sense that uh, many of the students just want to be told that there is an alternative way and and uh, they, they, they want to kind of escape from this. And even good students who uh, think to themselves, this is not ever what I thought I wanted, ended up falling into it because it's the primary cultural script that, that a lot of them right. pick up but they don't actually want it. And so there is shame because, you know, shame is of course an encounter for, or, you know, it's what happens when we do something that does not actually result in our flourishing. And, uh, but I find that the students don't want it and thus look elsewhere pretty quickly.
1: Well, it seems like the shame is more in the actual desire of longing for something authentic, something more than what they're finding. You know, they feel like they need to kind of, um, hide that desire deep within, you know, um, mask it because being honest with the desire for maybe their parents' marriage or their grandparents' marriage or, or you know, that kind of encounter almost seems like a fairy tale nowadays and something um, to be mocked.
2: Yeah, I think that they have a lot of, uh, you know, incorrect conceptions of romance. They've been formed in a kind of narrative of romance on television and in popular culture, where they're going to encounter a person that will complete them, that will lead to their total absolute flourishing. And that's also not not part of marriage. And so they, they often are competing between these narratives in which there is no commitment. There is nothing that's lasting. But then there's also this utterly um, romantic uh, view of marriage that that also is unsustainable. And so they don't know where to look. And I, I actually think the tradition of the church provides some good answers for a realistic sense of marriage grounded in mundane life, one that transforms normal the normal world, but is a real communion, a real sense of intimacy that transcends mere physical pleasure.
1: Right. And what I've seen is that the personal communion and face-to-face communication has become almost burdensome and lacking of stimulation to our virtual culture, as you alluded to. And, um, you know, it's so much easier to just text someone than to talk to them. And it's almost burdensome to have to have a conversation and especially a face-to-face conversation, because as you said earlier, it is very uncomfortable and um, yet, you pose in your book, Marriage, as a medicine for the hookup culture. So, first of all, how do we get to a healthy marriage anymore? And then, second of all, how is marriage medicinal?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think even before we get to a healthy marriage, uh, you know, the, I think one of the things I've discovered is our, our first task is to really examine this culture for what it is. I think many of my students. Uh, many of those I've worked with in college campus ministry settings, uh, they know this exists, but they have no clue that everyone else knows that this exists. So the first task is what what I describe as a kind of cultural analysis until we're able to analyze what this is, where it comes from to understand that this, this conception of love is artificial, isn't the one that has to be true. Then we're kind of stuck in a rut. And so you know, I always begin my courses, I always begin any sort of act of teaching w- with an examination of this kind of cultural conception of love, the, the, the false conception. So, so in, in essence, even before one teaches the sacrament, you have to clear the ground, you have to make space, you know, less people uh, confuse with the church means when it says love with something else. Uh, and only then do I think we enter into a kind of discussion of philosophy and I've actually found discussing the actual rite of marriage can be very fruitful. It leads students mm-hmm. to understand what's actually happening in the sacrament, that it's not just a, a kind of blessing of love as we understand it, but a lifting up of that love, a transformation of that love into a bond that is permanent, that is a communion that extends beyond a moment, uh, but is a, actually Christ's own love. And, and so it's this sense of grace, the sense of love that comes as community and that is healing right it's healing because it's not temporary it's a love that um you know to quote the song of songs a, a love that a love that's stronger than death
1: right and because you work on a college campus and you speak often with college students who are in the midst of this cultural battle right now i find it interesting that you're able to really tap into some of those experiences And especially the double standards, you talk um, a little bit about that and you say there is no equivalent of the walk of shame for men since their hookup is a matter of pride. Women who hook up with many men get reputations for being easy. Men who hook up with lots of women are objects of envy for the citizens of Brotown. And I mean, obviously any woman who's lived through her teens and you know, college years through her twenties knows that that's true, and you answer this in recognizing contraception and cheaper sex, Tinder, pornography, and I found it interesting that you even spoke about your time of working at a video store, which obviously you know is obsolete nowadays. Very but,
2: obsolete, highly obsolete.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of that um, shame in which. You know, you always knew that in certain uh, video stores, there's that back room that you had to be over 18. And you knew that the person going back there was kind of skeezy and you looked at them weird and laughed and giggled, you know. And then, of course, um, when they came out with their video or whatever, they would actually have to take it up to a real face-to-face person who would then look at it and know what... (laughs) It was, you know, and make a judgment about what was going to happen with this movie. The person had to go through all of that. Um, You know, you call it the gauntlet of the video store. And now, obviously, it's there's much easier access and there's no, you know, not an awkward, shameful encounter among, you know, the person, the clerk and whoever else you might run into. So those things among others. And then finally concluding that women are not really holding men to that standard of their nobility anymore. So is a hookup still prideful for men and shameful for women? Or would you, do you see that as equaling out now in culture? Or why do you think there is still that double standard?
2: Yeah, I mean, based upon class discussions, the double standard still exists. I mean, I think you only have to, Ask men and women on a college campus to reflect upon how they're viewed after hooking up or viewed by friends with hooking up. And I think, you know, uh, relative to a theory about why this double standard exists, uh, you know, I think it's a fair statement to acknowledge that, um, well, the cost of a hookup traditionally. Especially in an age before contraception for women is a lot higher than for men. Uh, and, and I mean this in the sense that, you know for women, uh, there's a benefit uh, biologically to enter a stable relationship where if one finds oneself pregnant, there is support and companionship that can assist one. And this may not traditionally exist for men. And so if you read sociological studies, for example, uh, how this unfolds. Um, what, what often takes place is that men for whom s- sex is an experience that's actually very disconnected, almost in some ways from biology, um, seek to have as much of it as possible and women didn't. And, uh, in the last 15, 20, 25 years, there's been a desire to equal this out, but the results have not been good for women. Uh, you, you know, um, in the study of Mark Regnerus on premarital sex, In America, notes that for men, there's no correlation between depression and number of sexual partners. And for women, there is that the more sexual partners, the higher the level of depression. And so there seems to be something biological, something innate to being a man and a woman that actually, um, you know, doesn't lead to the hookup culture. So the hookup culture tries to create this space where there's equality between the sexes, at least sexually, but it doesn't seem to be working.
1: That's funny because you do see that that has always kind of been a goal at the forefront of the modern feminist revolution is to make the sexes equal, especially in regards to, you know, sexual standards and ability to have these encounters with no future.
2: Yeah, I do think that that's, you know, a part of the narrative. I think, you know, uh, thinking intelligently about equality is necessary and, and a, a real recognition that, at least biologically, the equality is quite distinct in any sexual act. Um, you know, as I remind my students, um, some have been born with the possibility to give, to, to, to bear life within them and some haven't. And that must have an effect upon the way that we view the world. And, and so, in essence, you, you know, both uh, traditional, um, you know, traditional aspects of formation for dating and marriage involved a kind of dance and a recognition of this. And there was a guarding of, in some ways, the danger and uh, the precarious nature of sexual desire that that I think most of my students just don't recognize. They, They don't enter this presuming precarity. They presume they're entering a playground of fun, but it's not always that way, is it?
1: And I think it is interesting how you mentioned women as traditionally they were seen almost as the gatekeepers of purity. And we hear that a lot, Um, even as you mentioned, as far back as Song of Songs, you know, you hear there is this beautiful language of almost seeing this woman as this mystical, um, pure being, you know, that he's pursuing and, and his bride to be. And then through the ages, you see that that gate is no longer, I guess, closed, or people don't put value on um, that role. They see it again as um, not being fair between the sexes or um, holding on to an old mindset, you know, in regards to marriage or dating or things like that. But you can see exactly how Humana Vitae was handled when it was released. And then you can see. Where we've come since then?
2: Yeah, I think that there has to be a mutual work of the sake of sort of a sexual education that guards purity. And I think, uh, you know, some of the courtship rituals of old that were designed apart from hooking up were part of this. A real sense of commitment to another person demonstrated through through the love that one would show by by really attending to the other person, by by showing deep and abiding interest in them, by learning the practices of dating. Dating, as I tell my students, is a practice. It's not a uh, something magical. You actually have to learn how to talk to someone, to look into their eye, to get to know them, to, to grow affectionate about their being uh, apart from their sort of sexual desire. And, and so in this sense, I think that there is a twin task today for both men and women to reclaim this practice of communion of face-to-face conversation of friendship through which all other relation all other aspects of the relationship must develop uh, and I think that's really a kind of uh, it's it's one of the ways that we can respond to a current culture perhaps that doesn't seem to value that friendship
1: yeah it's interesting to think of dating as a practice you know any kind of You think of it as just coming naturally, but I think that that's well said and that's an education I think that young people do need to know that this is something that does require practice and effort and um, interest and, you know, these things don't always come naturally. And um, also that the freedom of our love and it's not merely about a revelation, but an action and the will must move. And one of the things that was so different about my husband from other men, in my experience, was the way that he pursued me as soon as he realized that he loved me. Yet finding men motivated by the will to act is no longer common. And you mentioned speaking to many of your students about how they love one another, but they're afraid to move and afraid to give everything So what advice do you usually give to young men about how they can motivate their will to move if they know they love this person, if they know that they, you know, want to be in communion with this person, but there's just um, it kind of stops there.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things that I always want to foreground for the students. The first is actually love is terrifying, and that's why there's a fear to act upon it it's very, there is a a sort of dimension of vulnerability to say to someone, I love you or to pursue them and to open your heart to another person where you could be rejected, where there really is a kind of vulnerability. And so, you know, there's a sense in which we really still value love if we're willing to, uh, if we're so scared of of what it would mean to reveal it too completely. But second, I I note, importantly, that that it is a worthwhile friendship of relationship that one wants to sort of move along. And I think many young people are afraid to enter into it too early because they're afraid of a a commitment that would tie them down. They have a narrative of young adulthood in which uh, when you're young, you're supposed to travel the world and find yourself and not be too attached to another human being. And, And this is linked, right, to this kind of fear of communion. And so what I encourage for them is to is really to think coherently about the way in which um, we're made uh, for this communion, and actually life is more of an adventure with another person uh, alongside you. That you'll find yourself, you know, it won't be through probably exotic trips to Europe uh, as you sort of discover, you know, the nature of a, you know, the as you backpack through this th- this gorgeous vista. It might be something as simple as you know learning to pay bills together but actually this is the kind of communion that that comes to to actually be the most fun one
1: I actually had an interesting experience um, during my single years in my 20s um, after college and everything going forth into young adulthood and um, single life and community with other singles and it was in the DC area and I just saw this phenomenon especially I don't know if it was rare to that city, but it was just that there were um, many frustrated women who were longing to get married and move forward and enter into a committed long-term marital relationship. And there were many men who were faithful Catholic practicing, and they would go to all of the different young adult events in the church that you know the church would be hosting. They'd be very active But there was really, as they approached 30, even as they approached 35 and 40, no desire to get married, even though they were surrounded with such worthy people, you know, to, there wasn't even a lot of dating that went on. It was just like, they almost were happy with encountering these women in these communal events, um, theology on tap or whatever like that. But there was not a lot of movement as far as singling someone out. It was almost like they were very happy to be surrounded by 10 to 20 single women, as opposed to having to narrow that down and and be exclusive or start dating just one person.
2: Yeah. it. There is this, yeah, a sense of uh, a fear of action, a, a kind of a dearth uh, of movement. And, you know, and I do exhort the guys that, um, action is allowed, that it's okay to actually move. It's okay to make a decision that, that, that to be in this sort of the the space that you're talking about is itself a kind of a result of a hookup culture, not so much physical, right? These are not people who are necessarily physically active, but that there's this utter fear of action and commitment. And so what you end up with is a kind of, um, Well, a kind of emotional hookup, right? A a kind of uh, ambiguity is the name of the game. And so um, I I think it's really important to not be uh, to, to not let this ambiguity remain forever, that we are called, if you are called to marriage, to marry a person, not the abstract idea of marriage. Uh, but to marry this concrete existing human being, this person, and until you actually engage in this drama, engage in this adventure, you're, you're never really going to experience the pure joy of what love could be. Everything for you is just going to be this sort of emotional kick rather than this real abiding sense of commitment.
0: Right.
1: And Tim, the theory of soulmates, which I must warn all of the hopeless romantics and Hallmark movie fans out there. Tim, no soulmates. What kind of a dark world are you living in? How does the soulmate theory erase the drama of love?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we have to understand uh, uh, there's one way that one can misunderstand a soulmate, right? And I think it's a narrative that's told in romantic comedies and there's something sort of tempting to it, that there's one human being out there that we all search for. And if things don't go exactly according to plan, then it's over and there's nothing we can do except, um, pine and long for this sort of soulmate. Uh, God has not sort of made a single human being in the world that we're all searching for devoid of, of, of any hope of finding, um, God does not act like that. Instead, you know, the doctrine of divine providence really allows for the possibility that God has created a world out of love, guides a world out of love, and can transform and even uh, transfigure our own decisions in in a way that leads us to to the greatest desire of our heart. And so to say that there's no soulmate just means it's not the case that you're going to necessarily find someone whom you feel immediately completes every part of your being. You know, I often talk to people who go on one or two dates with someone and says, I don't know, I don't think they're the right one. And I always say, what, what do you mean? You, you don't even know this person. Um, and some of them get married after they go on more than two dates. Uh, and, and so the point being is, if you expect this kind of romanticism, if you expect that that there's one person that you're searching for and that's it, you're just going to continually be disappointed. Rather, we are made for love and God does have a providential plan for the world. And this providential plan uh, it will, will transform us if we allow ourselves to participate in it. So, so I do debunk soulmates, but um, for, for all those romantics, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care whom we choose or isn't involved. It just means when we talk about soulmate, we're not talking about love actually.
1: Yes, I love that. I had to bring that up and give you a hard time because I do think that, especially for women, you know, you go into the dating world and the idea of finding that person who is perfect in every way. And, you know, there's a light coming down from the sky that that lights up the room and fireworks and all the rest of it. And obviously, you know, women and men have their own problems with. The theories that they enter into when going into the dating realm. But I think that idea of soulmate is something that you really have to understand for something much more, something much deeper and more mysterious in light of Christ and in light of um, the love that he truly wants to give you outside of those kind of fantasy movies and um, novel romances that you might have accustomed to or, or grown to expect. So I thought that was interesting that you approached that head on. And you even dare to approach the tough verse from Ephesians on spouses being subordinate to one another out of reverence for Christ. So how is this understand through the mystery of Christ's love?
2: Yeah, I think this is obviously a passage that every uh, couple uh, enjoys when it's read at church, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and I think my students, uh, their, their initial reaction is against it. And I think uh, the tradition, especially in the 20th century, has underlined that the subordination of husband and wife is first and foremost to Christ, right? So it's not a case of power. Um, and so in a relationship, if one is thinking to oneself, who has the power and who doesn't? It means you've already misunderstood the entire Christian economy of salvation, right? Um, it's not who has the power, who gets to control this, who gets to control that. It's rather that husband and wife both have submitted to Christ, and therefore, in the particularities of our bodies, of our of our of our gendered selves, of our, ourselves who that exist as as male and female, we we will live out this life, live out this existence in particular kind of ways. But the goal of marriage isn't power. It's not to see who can get the control, but it's giving up the game of power at all uh, to love and to the end, uh, not just in imitation, but to really accord ourselves, to, to attune ourselves to the love that's at the heart of marriage, which is the love of Christ that's united to the church. And so in this sense, as I tell my students, Uh, you know, if you're in any sort of relationship where you're wondering, well, who gets to control the other person, you're already in the wrong kind of relationship. Uh, In in the Christian life, the goal is not control, but it's love unto the end. And there are certain ways that this love will be expressed, of course, um, uh, depending upon the relationship, depending upon the people involved. Uh, But as St. John Paul II, you know, proclaims, both husband and wife are united first in in this piety or or this pietas under submission to Christ.
1: Yes. I'll ask you, how is our act of consent in marriage so significantly more than a mere transaction? How can our mundane acts of love actually sanctify the world?
2: Yeah. Um, in essence, that's the that's the heart of a Catholic conception of marriage, that consent, which is a contract, but is not just a contract. And the free giving of ourselves to one another without any impediments uh, is when we when we confess love to one another. Then what we do is as baptized. You know, when a marriage takes place between two baptized Catholics, um, th- these words are spoken not just intellectually, and they're not just spoken as a promise. These are the words of Christ speaking in the church today. And that couple at that moment is consecrated in completeness to Christ. Uh, Their will is given over to Christ and the new bond of love. And this is the bond that is established is not just a contractual bond, but it's a bond of Christ's own love of the love of the spirit that now lives between that couple. And so while they give those vows, but for a moment, uh, that bond is eternal. And their very bodies, their whole form of life now becomes an image of that bond. And everything that they do is to become an image of that love of Christ. That yes is to be translated into the mundane life of parenting, of caring for each other while sick, of making a home together and building a culture and participating in education and transforming society. And in each of those cases, it's not just you know a husband and a wife acting. Uh, It's it's Christ's own love acting between that couple. And so the the, the church has an extraordinary high view of sacrament of marriage, one that actually many of my students are are surprised to learn about, and it makes them to think very differently about what being married is in the first place.
1: And I think that's such an important reminder for married couples as well, just how significant As you say, that culture that you build in your family, that domestic church, how important it is, and even the mundane acts that seem routine and frivolous and bearing no weight in the grand scheme of the world or salvation, it's so important to remind yourself of the weight of that consent that you gave in marriage and how you live it out throughout the rest of your life, your married life and as you said before that is really the adventure that you're on with your spouse it might not be um you know traveling all over the world or having these kind of epic adventures that you can come back and tell people about or show pictures but it's just the daily adventures that um that add up to one amazing love story in the end of your life and and throughout the generations that you've passed that love along to so I want to thank you for being here. Our guest has been Tim O'Malley. His book, Off the Hook, God, Love, Dating, and Marriage in a Hookup World, can be found at Ave Maria Press. Thank you, Tim.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.